Well, friends, welcome to another episode of Better Stories. Uh, I hope you are surviving the winter. Hope that you're not feeling the uh, the depression that late January, early February tends to set in. And uh, I hope wherever you are, it's sunny and warm because it's not where I am. But uh, I'm excited to share with you today. This is this is another episode. Um, this is actually not an interview. This is our final live event that we did in 2017 uh, back at the McNemer House in West Virginia. Uh, it's a talk that I gave. Um, really talking about the fleeting nature of life, the fact that things move so fast and our world continues to move fast, and and really a challenge to slow down um, before the pace of life that we're living kills us all. So this is live from the McNemer House, clear back in November of 2017. It's a Better Stories talk, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, good evening. How is everybody? How, we'll try that again. It's Thanksgiving break. You don't have to go to work, I don't think, on Monday. How is everybody? Yeah. So thanks for coming. They, they kept saying the main event, and it felt like a WWF wrestling, which I'm definitely not. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Thank you for coming out on your Thanksgiving break. So we're going to jump in. I want to talk to you guys tonight about several things. I want to talk about how robots are going to take over the world. I want to talk about the worst thing I ever did in second grade. I want to talk about some things in Jamaica, some things in Africa. I want to talk about Utopia and The Walking Dead. Any Walking Dead fans? Yes, tacos and Star Wars and slowing down really fast before it kills us. But before we start, I want to ask this question, and I'd love to get some feedback. It's a little smaller crowd tonight, so you failed at inviting friends, so I'm going to make you talk out loud, okay? All right, so here's the question. What is it that makes us human? What would you say? Just start shouting things out. What are the things that make us human as opposed to other things? I can't see hands or faces, so just yell. Thumbs. Okay, opposable thumbs. All right. That's where my mind went first, I'm sure. But what else? What else makes us human? A head. <laughs> I hope that wasn't my kid. Um, <laughs> what? I'm, huh? Clothes? Okay, yeah. We don't see a lot of monkeys wearing shirts. Good. A couple other things. Brains? Well, um, stay in school. What else? <laughs> Emotion, yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Come on, what else? Mistakes, yes, okay. What else? I, there's a lot of dead deer, I think, that make mistakes maybe, but <laughs> regret, we could say regret. <laughs> one more, give me one more good one. The ability to speak. Ability to speak, well done. Okay, so we're gonna talk about that. Let me, let me just tell you, first of all, about artificial intelligence. Anybody up on artificial intelligence been reading or studying or hearing all that's going on with AI? Anybody? Anybody remember the movie AI? Does anybody remember that movie? It was like four hours long and terrible. Um, <laughs> so artificial intelligence, I've been reading this book for months. It's, it's just, it's been a, it's not that it's a super hard book, but it's that it's a book that disturbs me and is a little bit scary at what's coming. It's called The Inevitable. You should go look it up. But it's talking about 12 shifts in technology and our culture that are going to shape and change the world. So I want you to think about this, and we're going to talk about AI in a minute, but think about how entertainment has changed since you were a child, okay? Everybody with me? Like, what I remember, how many of you remember putting a record player on, on the, the spinny thing, and the needle dropped, and yeah, and then we moved to what? What came after records? Tapes. Tapes, yes. Tapes, and then after tapes? CDs, if you're younger than 12, sh- hold on, because we're going to get to you. Okay, what happens after CDs? Where did we go? 
iPods, MP3 players. Yeah, if you weren't rich, you got an MP3 player. If you were rich, you got an iPod. Okay, then we started saying, well, we could make a phone out of that. So now we have iPhones. And then now we're back to what's trendy again. Record players. We're back to record players. Have you noticed that? How about reading? All right. When I started reading, it was the first thing I loved. Like, I, I learned to read in school, but the first thing I loved was comic books. Anybody comic book fans? Where's Jeremy Bailey? I see that hand. Yes. <laughs> comic books. I love comic books. I, I would read novels. And then when you had a research paper to do, what would you have to read? What would you, where would you have to go? Articles, encyclopedias. And then in, like, the 90s and computers, we got Encyclopedia Britannica online. Remember that? And now we have what? How do you pass classes? Google. Google and one more, Wikipedia, right? YouTube, YouTube saved my life, right? Yes. And now we have e-readers. We read our books on our phones. Think about how communication has changed. How many of you grew up with one of those really, really old things called a phone that attached to the wall, and it had the round, spinny thing? Are you with me? Everybody remember that? Anybody remember the party lines? I don't either. There's a couple of us here that, that remember that. But we had phones. Then we had um, the first, first phone I remember having in my car was a bag phone. All right. You, anybody remember that? It's like a big brick that you just set in your car. And then we moved to cell phones and smartphones and dumb phones and all that. And it's just amazing how things are, tr- are, are changing and have changed even in our lifetime. But I want you to think about this. In 1994... Time Magazine published an article about the internet, right? You've heard of that, right? The internet? Are you with me? Okay, so the internet and Time Magazine in 1994 said, and I quote, it was not designed for commerce and it does not gracefully accommodate new arrivals. 1995, Newsweek was quoted and this was the quote, the internet, bah, that's what they said, bah, B-A-H. The truth is no online database will replace your newspaper, Baloney, that's what they said. Today, there are 60 trillion websites. That's a lot of zeros. So let's talk about robots for a minute. 1996, anybody know what happened in 1996 with with the robot? There was a chess player named Garry Kasparov. Garry Kasparov was the world champion, and he was beaten for the first time by a computer called Deep Blue. In 2011, IBM invented the computer named Watson that actually defeated and won Jeopardy. Today, artificial intelligence is growing at exponential rates in ways that are somewhat exciting and somewhat terrifying. Uh, there, are, there are artificial intelligence systems that are making symptom-based diagnoses. So a kid born today, a child born today, in several years, because of artificial intelligence may not have to go see a doctor, okay? They may just like get the, and I just met someone who's a medical student. I'm sorry. It's just (laughs) hang in there. We need you. Um, More than $18 billion since 2009, more than $18 billion has been invested in artificial intelligence. In 2014 alone, $2 billion was invested in 322 artificial intelligence companies. Can you believe that? It's amazing. There is artificial intelligence music now happening where when you play a video game based on the choices that you make in the game, where are my nerds? Based on the choices that you make in the game, you reset and change and shift the soundtrack of the game as you play. Are you freaked out yet? There's a robot named Baxter. Baxter, you can go look this up on where? Where would we look this up? YouTube. 
Well done. Baxter, Google will get you there too. Baxter is a robot with eyes that actually trace human movement and will make you feel like you're connected to this robot. They're using Baxter in settings, and Baxter has these big clunky arms that you move and you train to do different tasks, to perform different jobs. But Baxter is the first AI robot that is actually aware of his surroundings and knows what is going on and can interact with humans on the job. Let that sit in, and you'll think about how amazing that is. There's also a robot I learned last night named Sophia. Sophia was just the first robot to receive citizenship in the country of Saudi Arabia. No kidding, you can look it up. One, the writer of this book, The Inevitable, he said robots in about uh, the next generation or two will replace 70% of the jobs that now exist and create new jobs, new practices of life, and new ways to be human. Anybody frightened yet? Are you with me? Here's the thing. When I was a child, I remember going home after school. School let out at 3.15. I would ride the bus home at 4 p.m. Does anybody remember what came on TV? Scooby-Doo was one of them. What else? Not for me. I'm, I'm older than you. For me, it was DuckTales, Darkwing Duck. Are you guys, anybody with me? Okay, all right. So He-Man was when I was a little bit younger. I loved He-Man. And I knew that on one of the two channels that I had in my house after school, I could see an hour of good cartoons before the adult boring stuff came on the screen. And then I had to go outside and play. And I would usually play football with myself. I was the all-time leading scorer in my property. When I was 17 years old, I had to go to school and I had to make plans with my friends at school because we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have texting, and we would actually organize and plan out our weekend, but it was all based on, well, I'll see what my mom says, and if she lets me go, then I'll go. Now, everything has shifted. Our children are going home. They can access literally thousands of shows on demand at any time. Does this blow our minds yet? Sometimes I think we're just not amazed enough at what's happening around us. I have children that I've interacted with, right, who will never pick up a phone. They'll text, they'll snap, they'll Instagram, they'll do all this stuff. Everything is changing so fast. Think about the other advances. How many of you have seen or have a 3D printer? Anybody have a 3D printer? It's not, one of you, it sounds, I can't see your hand, so like 30 of you, awesome, you don't know if I'm lying. 3D printers actually print out literal things, you know this, that Amazon is working with same-day delivery drones. We are living in the future. There are subscription services to clothes. Please don't tell my wife, she's not here tonight, right? You can subscribe to clothes. They send you new clothes. You can subscribe to groceries, music, movies, books, etc. on and on and on. Your fitness is automated and tracked. At one point, I believe the doctor will call you and say, hey, I noticed you're not getting enough calories in your diet. Would you change this? That's going to happen, right? All this stuff is happening. Now, if you're not scared enough yet, I want to tell you about one more thing. How many scientists in the room studied science, studied medicine, behind the scenes? You're like, you're science or you just like science. You're going to have to start interacting because I can't see you, okay? There's this thing called CRISPR. How many of you have heard of CRISPR? Let me hear with a big woo. One of you? Really? Or was that just sympathetic? Were you just loving... <laughs> That was just like, he's dying. Help him out. Okay, here's what CRISPR is. You got to hang with me. I'm not a scientist, so if you are, you can correct me afterwards. Just go with it for now. Be like, that was amazing. Here's what CRISPR is. Back in 1987, scientists were studying the bacteria E. coli, and they were looking in the humans at that DNA. They were reading a chunk of the DNA, and they found this obscure sequence that it looked like there were five identical sequences of a strand of DNA. 
okay? The thing was, in between these sequences, these identical sequences, were these little pieces, these little, what they call blurbs, blurbs, it's the science term. And so it was like DNA blurb, DNA blurb, DNA blurb, DNA blurb, DNA. And the five small pieces, they called, I gotta look at this, clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, CRISPR. All right. That's where they came out of. And they said, what is this? What is it for? So in 2005, they began to research these strands. And they had, at this point, a database of millions and millions and millions of DNA strands. And, and they had identified all this stuff. And they said, let's see if there's any matches out there. And so they said they entered this into their system. And it spit out these results. And these short little blurbs matched the perfect image of viruses. So one scientist, Eugene Kunin. He said, I think this is a defense system. People said, how do you know? He said, I think this is a defense system. And what was happening, this is what's happening. The bits of the bacteria, when the virus entered, would typically, you know, you guys got to tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, I know I can see two medical people, and you got to tell me if I'm wrong. But the way that I read this is that when the bacteria or, or the virus would enter the bacteria, the bacteria would send out enzymes to attack it. Am I going, we're going right so far? Okay, I'm going to go with this. All right. And it would attack. But the problem was, at times, the bacteria couldn't survive that and would be damaged by it. And so what would happen is when it did survive, it would blow up the invasive virus, and then it would send out little enzymes that would clean that up. And the cleanup enzymes would take pieces of that virus back and store them in between the strands of DNA, CRISPR. Repeating, interspersed, short palindromic repeater stuff. I don't know. And that's what they would do. So basically, let me put it in terms that I understood when I listened to this, okay? It was like the bacteria were saying, this virus is bad. We're going to take a mugshot picture of it. We're going to store it. So anytime that it comes back, and this is what happens, now this, this virus enters, we can send out assassins with the mugshot to know what they're looking for, and to kill it. Am I on a sort of right track? Okay, you don't know either. Awesome. That's what I was hoping for. Jennifer Dudna, I love her name, dude, the dude, right? Jennifer Dudna, a scientist later, said maybe we could turn this into something intentional. Maybe we could take this DNA technology and go after something like Huntington's disease. We could take the assassins, we could pick them apart, and we could give them new mugshots so that they know to clean that up. So now, years later, the question concerning CRISPR is this. Can we pick apart the DNA of an elephant and turn it into a woolly mammoth? Because we have woolly mammoth DNA. DNA. Isn't this weird? It's strange. There are now questions where scientists with this technology, this CRISPR thinking, are saying, could we turn a chihuahua into a Great Dane by simply changing the DNA? Could we eliminate cancer? By the way, they've taken mosquitoes that are bearing malaria, and they've gone in and they've done this, and 99% of the offspring of these mosquitoes were malaria-free. In 2016, they treated muscular dystrophy in mice. They think they may be able to start giving pig organs to humans because of the work of DNA. Maybe they can treat HIV. They've already removed a genetic blindness mutation from mice, and the mice were able to see better than the control group. They're wondering, and by the way, these are the ethical questions that are super fun to think about. Could we edit humans? Is this weird yet? We're moving at this unbelievable rate. The writer of this book said, we'll spend the next three decades, perhaps the next century, in a permanent identity crisis, continually asking ourselves, what are humans good for? If we aren't unique toolmakers or artists or ethicists, then what makes us special? So I want to return to that question that I asked you at the beginning. What makes us human? 
I want to tell you about the worst thing I ever did in second grade. Second grade, I had a best friend named Eric. Eric was such a good friend. I'm not going to tell you his last name because it's a small town. You might know him. Please don't bring this up to him. In 1988, we attended French Creek Elementary School. Any bulldogs in the house? You're not a bulldog. You changed jobs. Awesome. So we, in 1988, we were on the playground, and I remember the playground had new equipment. I remember the swings. I remember the tetherball set. Anybody play tetherball? Why did they let kids play tetherball? It was an awful idea, right? Every day we played soccer until the teachers got mad because the boys couldn't stop arguing, and all this stuff was happening. But I remember more clearly than anything the merry-go-round. Did you have a merry-go-round on your playgrounds? Where have they gone? Have you? Yeah, I realize now. Okay, so the merry-go-round was a spinning death trap. And the way that recess happened at our school is everybody would crowd on the merry-go-round except the big, strong kids. I was not that kid. The big, strong kids would spin the merry-go-round at ungodly amounts of speed, and you would hang on as long as you could. Now, here's what typically happened. The nervous Nellies would jump off real early, right? Like, I've had enough. I'm getting sick which is me today if I were to get on a merry-go-round. That's exactly what I would be. The rest of us would cling to the thing as hard as we could, and those big kids would spin us fast, faster, faster, faster. And I remember my best friend Eric was so good at spinning me and the rest of the people that I was like, I just this guy's awesome. And so at one day, the worst thing I ever did in second grade, I was holding on to the merry-go-round with one hand. I had the other hand, like I felt like I was, like even today, I'm like, why can't I feel that again? I felt like I was flying. And I remember so vividly in, the, in the, my mind's eye, and my real eye, seeing my friend Eric, and this thought crossed my mind. I wonder if my hand can slap his face. <laughs> Not kidding you. And in, I'd love to tell you that the better angels prevailed. They didn't because I flung around there. And the answer was yes. It could very much strike his face. And I just... Whoom, and it felt like it all slowed down. I know it didn't, but it felt like it all slowed down because I just, I saw his delight at the joy that he was bringing to the kids like me on the merry-go-round turned to rage in a minute. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I, I went flying off the merry-go-round, sprinting away, being chased by a kid that could pummel me in a heartbeat. <laughs> and the point of that story is that somewhere along the line in elementary school, part of being human means that we all learned that we can be mean and hurtful to each other, that part of our hurting capacity means there is contact between us. Some of it's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. If you know what I'm talking about, you probably have a fourth grade daughter. You recognize that at times kids can be really, really mean to each other, and there's this human connection that hurts now, let me take you to some good stuff that I did. I ended up in Jamaica in college doing a, a service trip twice. And while we were in Jamaica, both trips that we were there, we were in this village, and we actually bathed, showered, cleaned ourselves off in, I'm just not sure this was right at this point, but an irrigation canal. Like the, I don't know, the farmers were like, yeah, you guys don't have running water at your place. Come use our canal. And so we're there, and then we would shuttle back to the place we were staying. And so both trips, I, at times, I would take a run. I loved to run, and I would be out, and I'd run through the village. So on one particular day, I had woken up early, and I went out for a run through the village. And I remember running through the village having this thought, no one in the world knows where I am right now. It was a safe village, but it was this moment of like, this is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm in this country, in this village, in this place, and I'm running through this village, and all of a sudden it was raining, like pouring rain, but like hot, humid Florida rain. Are you with me? 
Like, that's kind of what I was feeling. And it was just such this incredible moment. And the rain started to stop. And I watched as the villagers started to come back out of the shacks that were up on the hills. And the kids were playing. And all of a sudden, as I'm kind of jogging along, I slow up because I'm hearing this repeated phrase, whitey, whitey. Because that's what they call us Westerners, <laughs> whitey, whitey. And, and as I stopped in the village, and it just, it, it, all at once, two little boys, they couldn't have been more than three years old, come running out in the road, Jamaican boys, completely naked, like completely naked, just run out in the road, and they're like, whitey! And I was like, this is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> like, it's awesome, because at that moment, no one that I knew relationally knew where I was, and yet I felt more connected to a people and a place than I had ever felt before. It was the contact with others that began to convince me of the depths of my humanity. And now I want to take you from the Caribbean all the way to Africa. I've been to Africa several times. One time when I was in Kenya, the first time I was in Kenya, we had the opportunity to visit this place called the Beacon of Hope. And the Beacon of Hope was a, a, a community development center run by a woman named Jane Wathoma. You can look Jane up on Google, YouTube, yes, you can look Jane up, stay with me. All right, and here's the reality. Jane was living in a land that had been overrun by the HIV and the AIDS epidemic. And Jane was this amazing woman who said to us the first time we sat down with her, she began to share with us because we had pulled up into this little community development center and there were these beautiful buildings and these gardens and these amazing women attending to the gardens and raising kids and teaching crafts and, and artisanship and they were selling their goods. And, and what we realized as we sat with Jane, we said, what are you doing here? She said, we're taking women that have no purpose, no meaning, no value anymore because they've been diagnosed with AIDS and we're giving them renewal and hope and purpose and a way to live their life. And we said, Jane, how did you start this? And she said, it started because God asked me if I would bathe someone who was dying. And she, we said, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, I was driving into this village and I pulled off to the side of the road because I was in seminary and I was praying, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do here? And she said, God so clearly said to me, would you bathe the dying? And I said, God, I don't, okay, whatever. And she was helping in a place that was giving treatment to women with HIV and AIDS. And as she approached the place where she worked that day, she went in and she said, what do you all need me to do today? And they said, we just need you to stay with this woman. She's in her last hours. Would you go and spend time with her? And she did. She went to this Kenyan woman who was dying on her bed. And she said, what can I do for you? And the woman said, would you bathe me? Would you give me a bath? And from there, she got the vision of what it meant to connect with people. See, I want you to understand this. Some of the most inspiring human connection I've ever experienced came in the midst of great pain and great suffering. See, I would say this, at least one element, when I ask you the question, what does it mean to be human? One, of the, one element, at least, of our uniqueness as humanity is the fact that we can connect with other human beings, whether it's pain, whether it's suffering, whether it's joy, whether it's conflict, whatever it is, we have this incredible gift of connection. Are you with me? Are you tracking this? See, in Africa, if we were to stay there for a while, you would understand they have an entire philosophy called Ubuntu, Ubuntu philosophy. And here's what Ubuntu says at the, the most basic level. I am because we are. See, this philosophy says I am fully me because we are a we. So in the country of Malawi, this quote, they say, when you are on your own, you are as good as an animal of the wild. When there are two of you, you form a community. In Rwanda, they, they have this, this idea of Ubuntu as human generosity. That is the generosity of your spirit, the generosity of the essence of who you are. Desmond Tutu says you can't be human all by yourself. One anthropologist who studied a tribe in Africa said, I introduced this game to the kids. 
I lined them up. I drew a line and I lined them up. I said, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to say, go, you're going to race. And at the end of the race by the tree is a big bag of candy. And whoever wins the race can get the bag of candy. The kid said, oh, we're ready. We're all cheering. And he lines them up. He says, ready, set, go. And one by one, they grabbed hands and they all ran together to the candy and picked up the bag and sat down and began to share it. He said, why would you do that? Don't you want to be happy with your candy? And they said, how can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? I am because we are. Nelson Mandela, if you know much about Nelson Mandela, you know he was in South Africa during apartheid, this incredible racial segregation and suffering that, that, that was experienced. And as he was in prison, he spent and he learned this philosophy of Ubuntu. He learned to dictate and live his life. He said prison was, quote, to stamp out that spark that makes each of us human and each of us who we are. It tried to kill our humanity. And then he said this, but the authority's greatest mistake was keeping us together. For together, our determination was reinforced. You see, he took and led all of these hostile prisoners and said, I want you to practice this generosity of human spirit, this beauty of connection, this beauty of community, and watch how it shifts the way our guards watch us, the way our guards oversee us. And it did. They began to befriend the white guards. And they began to lead them in conversation. And the guards would begin to say, well, we hope this, this movement goes well for you. We hope that you find your freedom. So in Nelson Mandela's prison, he began to express his deepest humanity. And in connection with others, even his enemies, he found freedom. So here's my proposition tonight. Here's what I want to ask you. What if the fullest way we can be human is only to be experienced when we recognize the fullest humanity of others. What if the way that you can best be human, the best way to live your life in this world, the best way you can choose to live your days and your weeks and your months and your years is to understand and experience the fullest humanity of someone else? You see, for years, I've wanted to write a book. I I, I want to write lots of books, but the one book that I keep coming back to, I, I just know the title. Anybody have that? Like, I've got the title, but I don't have the book. There's a lot of us. You're just not willing to admit it. I'm just being honest up here. Here's the title. I want to call it compassion, dot, 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 and other fleeting moments, <laughs> because I think it's just that, right? I had this experience in, in high school when I, when I had one of my first jobs, and I was working in a pharmacy. I was the pill counter guy. That was me. I got to count pills. I was highly skilled, highly trained, and I was counting pills, and I had this particularly really bad day. Anybody ever worked with the public and had a bad day? All of us? Yes. Okay. I I see those hands. I don't see those hands, but I see those hands. I had this particularly bad day and and this guy had come up and I had given him his pills and he ripped the bag out of my hand and he was mean all the time, but today he was extra mean and he was like 8,500 years old. I don't know how old he was, but he grabbed the bag and he, and I just unloaded on the pharmacist. Oh, what's this guy's problem? 17-year-old me who knows everything about life, right? I counted those pills perfectly. What's his deal? Like, what's going on? And she goes, oh, it's nothing. His wife just died last week. How quick did my emotion change? See, it, was, it, it went from anger and rage to compassion, and the compassion was just as fleeting as the anger and rage. I don't know if you recognize this about your own humanity. This is what I feel. I feel some things very deeply. How many of you feel things very deeply? Like you're just, if I just even say I feel things deeply, you're ready to cry. Are you with me? A- anyone in the room, look at someone and just say, that's you he's talking to, and, and that we just feel that, right? And some of you are, you pretend to be cold hearted, but you feel things too, because tomorrow's deer, or Monday's deer season, you're ready to cry already. And, and that's what's going on. Here's what I know. As deeply as I feel those things, I move out of those things so incredibly fast. They're so fleeting, aren't they? 
We can love so deeply. We can care so much. We can be so angry and so mean, and yet it can move on so quickly. Jesus said this to the Jewish people at one point. He looked at this this religious group, and he said, to what can I compare this generation? And then he says, it's like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, hey, we played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs, and you didn't mourn. See, Jesus is looking at a bunch of religious people. Here's what I think he says. You're missing the opportunity to live your humanity because you're so lost in everything else around you. For them, it was an intellectual debate. He said, you could be at a wedding and you could be sitting around. I'm sure no one ever does this. You could be sitting around debating. Well, did you see the bridesmaids' dresses? They were horrible. Their colors didn't match. Someone's guilty. I can hear the laugh, right? You might be at a party going, well, why did they serve that food? All right? You might be at a funeral going, I've got to hold it all together. I've got to keep it in. You're missing the opportunity to celebrate your humanity. I think we could say it this way. When we downplay, when we move so fast through life or, or so hardened through life, we're missing the good stuff. Right? One of my favorite stories about Jesus, and I know it's yours too because I've seen you here, right? When he turns water into more wine. Isn't that awesome? And it's not just more wine. It's not like cheap Walmart wine. It's the good wine. We're missing the good stuff. Jesus says when you live your life based on all this other stuff and you don't engage who you really are, the fullness of who you are, you're missing out on the good part of your humanity. See, there's literature today that's coming out about all this technology, all this science, all this speed of our culture, all that's going on. And and basically, there's always a goal to some of these things. And it's typically one of two goals. The first goal is utopia, right? Everybody knows what utopia is. What's utopia? Somebody just shout it out. It's like the perfect world, right? It's like the, the, the world that we end up with where there's no problems, there's no discomfort. Now, the problem with utopia is this. Utopia always becomes stagnant. It always stops growing. It always stops getting better. There's no problems to solve. There's no opportunities to dream. There's no destiny, imagination, wonder. I would say this, without problems in our life, without opportunities to grieve, opportunities to mourn, opportunities to rage against certain things, there's no movement forward. There's no growth. And so then there's the walking dead, the exact opposite, right? Because nobody's like, the walking dead's a utopia. We get to stab zombies in the brain, right? It's a dystopia. And it's the dark opposite. It's the apocalyptic. There's no good and there's no potential for redemption. All is lost. We are doomed. Many today have us convinced. I know you because I hear you talking about it. I was watching the news and they said, we're all going to blow up in the end. See, we we have these opportunities or these options, utopia or dystopia. What I want to do is present you with a third option tonight. and And it's called protopia. And it's the idea that we are still becoming rather than there's a final destination, that you are always becoming something more, that our, all, our world is always becoming something more. In that book, they say this, ever since the invention of science, we've managed to create a tiny bit more than we've destroyed each year. But that few percent positive difference is compounded over decades into what we might call civilization. So they say there's this science, and every time technology advances, it's making us just a little bit better, and, and that little bit is making us better than we used to be, and we're not destroying ourselves, but I want to I push you to think about it beyond science. See, better stories is not about science. It's about incremental betters in your lives. 
It's about the things that you wake up tomorrow and you go, I'm going to make today better than yesterday. I'm going to make this week better than last week. I'm going to make this month or this year better. It's advancing our humanity because of our connection to other people. So let me tell you ultimately, I'm going to give you the golden answer of what makes us human. Are you ready? This is what you've been waiting for. This is why you paid the big money to get in here. Are you ready? No, no, no. Like really, are you ready? Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Brittany. All right. So here's the deal. What makes us human at the core of who we are, I believe, is tacos and Star Wars. All right? Yeah? Are you with me? How many taco lovers? Right. Yeah. See, tacos, I love tacos. Now, I I said this a few weeks ago in church, and somebody came up to me afterwards, bless his heart, and he said, hey, I love tacos too. You want to go to Taco Bell sometime this week? And I cast the demon out in Jesus' name. No, I, I said, sure, we'll, we'll go to Taco Bell. But I don't love those kind of tacos. I love tacos, like mahi-mahi tacos with coleslaw and cabbage and chipotle aioli, amen. And all the good stuff, right? I love those. See, tacos are desires for me. We are human because of the desires that we have, this, this desire that we would long for connection to other people. No animal gets to experience that. No plant gets to experience that. We long for certain things. We long to belong to some people that say, you are mine and I am yours. You are part of my tribe. And we long for meaning or joy or contentment or rest. We have these deep desires, but it's not just tacos or desires, however you want to say it. It's also about Star Wars. Star Wars comes out in 26 days. Are you with me? Have you bought your ticket yet? Because if you haven't, what are you doing with your life? Go get it. See, Star Wars is a passion. How many of you know the real Star Wars people? How many of you live with the real Star Wars person? It's not just an affection. It's a passion. Are you with me, Jessica? Like they know the story, but they know the story behind the story and why the story behind the story exists behind the story. And it's passion. See, desires and passion make us who we are. You have passion that expresses itself in love. I love tacos, but I also love my wife. And if it came down to my wife or tacos, I would choose my wife because I love her deeply. It's our passion and our desire that makes us who we are as humans. So here's here's the question tonight. I really hope that you might ask yourself, how can I begin to slow down really fast? Because I think our speed is killing us. I really do. See, I love technology. I think it's the cool, I think AI is so cool. I think robots are so cool. And it's like, what are we going to do? But I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to have to save us. I think we're going to be okay. But these incremental betters of science are raising some serious questions. What does it mean for us to be human? See, this writer said, I'm sorry for all the quotes, but here's what he said. Technology is an extension of the hands of man. We fight with our fists and by extension with bombs. We heal with our hands and by extension with scalpels. With fire, we warm our homes and we burn villages. The power of humankind to hurt and to help are magnified by the technology we create. It extends our reach. See, I would say to you tonight, God bless you, more or less, you will become more or less human by the way you use the technology in your life. It's not a curse. It's not innately bad. But the way that the technology is driving your life will extend who you are as a human. So we have these passions and these desires. And I want to share one more story with you before we start to close. The Nigerian people, the Igbo people, they say this. They say that the gods in their culture, the gods in their humanity were formed when the people decided, hey, we need this God. 
we need the God of the rain, or we need the God of the farm, or we need the God of this. And they would go to their priest, and they would say, hey, we, we need this God. And the priest would say, okay, well, we'll build an altar to that God, and you get to, to honor that God. But what would happen is that if the God became unruly and began to say, well, th- we demand human sacrifice, if the God got out, got out of control and said, it's time for you to sacrifice your human, then the priest and the people would have to tear that God down. And so I wonder if we were to become more human, if we were to incrementally live better stories, I wonder what gods might have to be torn out of our lives. I wonder if the God of movement that has convinced us that we should sacrifice ourselves for the sake of busyness should be torn down. Because man, do we worship it. I wonder if the God of numbness that says all I need to do is dull the pain that I've denied for so long and it results in these addictions and lack of true fulfillment. I wonder if we need to tear that God down. I wonder if the God of status that says all I need is more people to like my posts, more people to like me, more people to let me know how valuable I am when all I feel is discouragement for myself. I wonder if that God needs torn down. I wonder if the God of scarcity that says I never have enough, I never have enough time. I never have enough financial resources. I never have enough could be replaced by generosity. You see, what makes us human? I wonder if we could tear these gods of our lives down in a search to regain our humanity. Maybe, maybe you're here and you would say, I get it, but I don't have any idea how to do it. I don't know how to move away from these ways of thinking and these ways of worship that have defined my identity. So here's my invitation, and this is about as practical as I'm ever going to get with better stories. So don't hold it against me because I got some super practical things. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Number one, what if you recognized your own fleeting nature? What if you recognized how fleeting your emotions are, how how quickly your life is passing away? The Jewish people had a scripture that said life is fleeting like a passing mist. It's like trying to catch hold of a breath. All vanishes like a vapor. So what if you woke up and just wrote these questions on your mirror and you just ask yourself this every morning? What would I do today if I didn't have tomorrow? See how that would change everything? What would I do today if I didn't have tomorrow? What, who needs me today if I weren't going to be here tomorrow? Who needs me? What if you just got really weird and artsy and you bought a journal? <laughs> I love my journals, right? That's just who I am. But what if you began to slow down life enough that you reflected on who you are. You used your technology to just record a note. This is what I did today, and it was awesome. Because here's the second thing. When you recognize how fleeting your life is, you might start to slow down really fast. And here's the practical thing. Get super tenacious about your calendar. Here's the thing I'm giving you permission to do this week. Sit down with your calendar. You're on vacation. You can do it. And cancel three things. Just cancel three things. Are you, doesn't that sound good? And then you're like, I don't know how to do it. They all will hate me. Right? Cancel three things. <laughs> oh, we're calling each other out. Let me ask you this question. What is the way you eat? Listen, listen, listen. What does the way you eat say about your pace of life? You know what I started to do on my last couple trips? I started to take my journal, my leather brown, super cool, tied up journal that I'm almost done with. And I started to keep a food journal. Here's the cool places I ate. I don't put Taco Bell on there. I don't put McDonald's on there. But you better believe I put the good stuff in there because I want to savor that. I want to slow down. 
Here's the third practical thing, and this is you're all going to love this. Adam, I'm ready for you to cheer. Eat tacos and watch Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Eat tacos and watch Star Wars. Find out what are your desires and what are you going to go after? What are the things that you're passionate about? What if your New Year's resolution was simply to learn a new hobby? Wouldn't that be fun? Like, I, I would love for somebody next year in January to be like, hey, I learned magic this year. I'm a magician now. That was my New Year's resolution. Way to go. That's super cool. Do something. And the last thing I would say, embrace the Ubuntu in you. I am because we are. Notice people more. Keep in that super cool journal that you're going to buy. Keep a log of new friends or special moments. Embrace the limits of your emotions. Let yourself shed tears. Some of you, I know you, and you haven't shed tears in 30 plus years. What if you did that? It's terrifying. I know. Laugh till you snort and it's embarrassing in public. Yes, where's John Prentice? He's not here. Let yourself be embarrassed. And I would say this, find your we. I'm learning and I, I'm such, I, I say this all the time. People are like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm a super introvert. I love the stage because I don't have to talk to you. You have to listen to me. <laughs> but I'm trying so incrementally to become better. And you know what it's doing to my soul? It's starting to make me super curious about people, and it's like forcing me into extroverted situations. I used to travel with these super awesome noise-canceling headphones where I didn't, I just put my hood up, and I'm like, I don't have to listen to the world, and it was just go into my shell, and now I leave them out, and I'm like, are they going to talk? I'm not there yet to be like, hey, how's it going? Like, some of you are amazing. That's not me, okay? But I, I have my headphones out now, and I'm like, maybe they'll say something to me. Okay, they're not. I'm going to put them back in. That's an incremental better for me. I'm becoming so curious. Find your we. So I want to say this to you. So someday robots may take over our world. I don't know. But they will never steal our humanity. We are better with each other. We are better when we are connected to each other. So I wonder, as we close tonight, if we could just get a little weird and grab the hand of someone else close to us. If you don't know that person Try not to be creepy, right? That's all I'm going to say. But I wonder if we could truly connect tonight. It's getting out of control here. I got to wrap up. And I wonder if as we connect physically, if I could simply, as you enter your Thanksgiving week, your week of giving thanks, I wonder if I could offer this blessing over you. May you never lose your humanity. May you find yourself again and again and again in the faces of others. May you recognize the hurt that you are capable of inflicting. And may you feel the power of the healing potential in your very being. May you hear the whisper of the divine calling you to the reckless discomfort of bathing those who are dying. May your eyes be so captivated by the humanity around you that your phone and your computer and your iPad and your Kindle and all that other stuff slowly dissolves into nothing but a tool to bless others. And may this moment, this special time that we have to be together, be memorable and movable as we enter this season of the holidays with hope and wonder and imagination. May we be we because of the presence and the passion of you. And may you always find and may you always cherish your tacos and your Star Wars to the fullest extent of your humanity. It is an amazing journey that I get to take with all of you. And I pray that you're blessed. Thank you all so much for being here tonight.